0: I would invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 2, the first 12 verses is where we will be at uh, this morning. It's a wonderful account of Jesus' life and ministry this morning. Uh, Mark not only is seeking to clarify who Jesus is, but he's exhorting us to action in the presence of Jesus who heals and forgives as Jesus speaks the words, rise, take up your bed and walk. See, Jesus has authority to forgive and authority to heal. To raise the dead. And he, our captain, calls us likewise into action, saying, Rise and walk. Will you join me with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, your Son, Jesus Christ, who is your very word. And as we open your scriptures this morning, we invite you to speak to us. Soften our hearts and open our ears that we might hear, that we might receive that which you have for us, and in so receiving we might be changed more and more into the image of your dear Son from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Now for Jesus' conflict, it was inevitable because before something is raised to new life, there must be a kind of dying or death happening first, and that in fact is the call to follow Jesus dying in him to rise again. Jesus comes to slay in order to heal. Now, remember, as we're entering Mark here for a number of weeks, Mark is telling the good news. That's what he says in verse 1, telling the good news of Jesus' victory, victory over sin, over sickness, over death, over the devil. And he begins this the following way in chapters 1 and 2, where we've just taught on his baptism, Jesus was then tested immediately in the wilderness. And he is a new Israel, but he is faithful, where Israel failed. And though tested, he remains true to God's commands. Soon after that, though, Jesus departs the region of Judea, Jerusalem, to go up north. And he makes home there in Capernaum. It's a a dot on the map near the Sea of Galilee. And there he calls fishermen to become fishers of men. And in divine authority, he casts out demons who dwell, reside in the synagogues. And then he gathers strength in isolated prayer, going off by himself. But he's called quickly back to travel throughout Galilee, where it says he's preaching and he's casting out demons throughout the whole region. The solitude of Jesus serves to strengthen him for greater service in the kingdom. Make note of that. Now in Capernaum, he seems to be making a, a home base there in that region, but also in, in Peter's house. There was Mark records where Peter, has a, Jesus in, is in Peter's house and, and Peter's mom is sick and, and Jesus heals her. And now it seems like the, the crowds are gathered at this same location and Jesus heals not mom here, but a paralyzed man. And both mom and this paralyzed man are healed in order to serve. Mark is asking us in, our, in the text here, like, who is this Jesus? He's introducing us still early on here. Who is this Jesus? And he introduces us quickly to Jesus as the faithful Israel, as the new temple, verses 1 and 2. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, uh, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. I want us to see that there's in the image of the, these first few verses that, that Mark is presenting Jesus as a new temple or a new way to God. And there's nothing new here. We've talked about this plenty of times. But what we have here, we have uh, um, Jesus is faithful where Israel failed. So he's a new Israel, but he's also fail, uh, fulfilling where the temple was insufficient. He says he's preaching the word. God's word is going forth from Jesus. He's granting forgiveness, and He's a long way away from the temple and sacrifice there. Uh, He's healing. He's restoring. That is what God was calling Israel to be and to do, healers, restorers of the broken world. Whether or not Jesus is recognized as a type of temple or access to God, He functions as such. And crowds are cramming to see Him, to hear Him. It's as if the, the, the nations are streaming to this, the mountain of God. And it's interesting, isn't it? At, at, at Jesus' birth, much like here, there's no room at the inn. It's all packed here, packed out. Walls are groaning, doorways are closed out. Newspaper clippings are saying, in search of truth, compassion, healing, and hope. And the crowds grow large. We see Jesus, of course, as a new temple, a faithful Israel, and as a new temple, as a new Israel, there's great expectations upon Jesus, verse 3 and 4, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could, get, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, I don't have um, any kind of archaeological evidence, but this was probably pre-COVID. They're packed in the house. They can't even get through the front door. No nice signs telling us how far we should stay from one another there. They're shoulder to shoulder, body to body. And there's much to admire in these men, as it's recorded here. One of the admirable qualities or traits here is that there is a great expectation in them in just approaching Jesus, as if they are processing, if only these four are thinking, We could get our friend in in close enough proximity. If Jesus could see his suffering, this one, he could do what no doctor or treatment could accomplish. This paralyzed man whose body would not respond to his own thoughts or voice, there's hope that the voice and the touch of Jesus will miraculously loosen limbs in order that this man might one day leap. Let's see, the way to healing has been barred from them. There must be another way. And so they do what any rational, insane person would do. They go to the roof. To the roof is the cry. And what is seen? As footsteps are heard above, shuffling, while Jesus is teaching, little motes of dust and, and dirt are descending on the heads of the, the hearers, a sliver of sun unexpectedly pierces through the roof from above. And surely Jesus would have been interrupted at this point. Uh, the crowd begins to murmur as the hole in the roof above them grows larger. And pretty soon a man on a stretcher or bed begins to descend. Faith in action expects much from Jesus. These men are taking action to find Jesus and to bring their friend to Him. And how about us? Do we expect much from Jesus, I mean, I know that life can often be disappointing, that things don't often work out as we'd like. God doesn't seem to answer our prayers as we might hope, or maybe not at all, and so we begin to wonder if it matters, if it makes a difference, if we can expect much. But we have here a picture for us, a model of prayer, approaching the King of Kings with great expectation, expecting much of Him who is the promise of making all things new, who himself promises to restore, to heal, to save. And so as we come to this text, it's, I think it's a good place to start where we're asking, are we expecting much of Jesus? Would our lives look much different if we didn't follow him? Do we expect great things of Jesus? He commands these men. He forgives this man. Mark helps us ask, who is this Jesus, a new Israel, a new temple? And he comes as the restorer. Verses 5 and following. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him within himself, said to them, Jesus, as the Restorer, does require activity on behalf of His his people. Jesus is the Restorer. He requires a faith that moves, a faith in action. And as we come to this story, I I hope we can see that, that what is required is acting, action. Jesus, it says, saw their faith. Now, therefore, faith must be something more than a mental assent to proper ideas. Correct theology or belief. What does Jesus see? Well, He sees men acting in faith, carrying a paralyzed man, ascending a roof, a descent of their paralyzed friend, all in search of a simple audience with Jesus. And what does He say? He says, this is great faith. This is great faith. The faith was evidenced by these men and this paralyzed man. Jesus says, by their faith, He's made them well. That is, by their actions approaching Jesus, He is made well. And a couple of things that we note from this is is there's a corporate nature to following Jesus. There's no way around it. It is the body of Christ. With all of her faults and with all of her failures, we belong to the bride of Christ. We are the body and the bride of Jesus Christ. And I think the simple image here of these four carrying this one is a beautiful image of what the body of Christ is supposed to be, the bride of Christ, bringing the rest of the bride to the bridegroom. There's a simplicity in simply acting on their belief, though maybe there's doubt, maybe there's just desperation here. Do we live in such a way that we ask and expect things of God that only God can accomplish in our family life? And those we've grown annoyed or just grown to despise. Those who don't know Christ, do we expect great things of this Jesus? And what a response. As they lower this paralytic, what would you think Jesus would say? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, so familial and familiar, so intimate. Son, he looks at him, your your sins are forgiven. And I can imagine the other four are thinking, well, we just, we're just kind of looking to heal him here. He wants to walk again, but this is great. Thank you. What is this connection here? It seems a bit of a strange response today because I think in part, in part because we tend to isolate forgiveness from restoration of the entire person, as if forgiveness was merely a cleansing of the moral stain and the moral record. Now, it's not less than that, but Whenever we hear forgiveness spoken of in the Bible there's there's a much more holistic a filled out image of restoration of all of creation of his people we would do well to sing portions of Psalm 85 where they cry to the Lord Lord you restored the fortunes of your people right it's talking about the restored the fortunes of God's people. He says, You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. Restore us again. What they were singing of in that psalm is melodic memories of of the land being renewed, of proper ownership and bearing fruit in its season, of relationships within the people being reconciled and renewed, of lives being repaired. Forgiveness meant not only right relationship with God, but restoration with His people, with all of creation. There's a wholeness to it, a fullness to it. See, later on in, in Jesus' ministry, when he heals a blind man, there was a question Who sinned in order that this guy was blind? Did he sin, or was it his parents' sin? And, and Jesus does not take the bait here, trying to cause, give that cause and effect relationship with sin. Rather, what he is about is about reversing the effects of sin in this man, in this people, throughout all of creation. Mark reveals Jesus as the one who restores and the one who forgives, and he weds them together. And then religious leaders are angry, and they cry out, blasphemy. Now, we can poke fun at them because it is odd, isn't it? Jesus is going to heal a guy, and they're angry because Jesus is claiming to do things. He is claiming authority to do things that only God can do. Now, if we read our Old Testament, it's not like priests didn't proclaim forgiveness of sins. So for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, that's a priestly act. The scriptures say that when the, the priests are doing their duty, they are what? They are making atonement for the sins of the people. But, but see, Jesus is not at temple. There's no sacrifice being offered here. No hands where the people are being laid on the animal, confessing their own sins. There's only... Desperate men looking for healing and restoration, and Jesus says, "Your sins are forgiven." As Jesus healed throughout the land, he was often commanding the people to be silent, because pressures and crowds would would build. Conflict was unavoidable, and those he comes to seek and save would soon seek to silence him and to persecute him. But these these uh, these religious leaders are on the right track, and they're asking. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus in word and action identifies himself as the one who has authority to both heal and to forgive. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. Jesus is the one with authority, authority to raise the dead. Look at verses 8 and following. Immediately Jesus perceiving in the spirit, they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus has authority to raise even from the dead. It's a wonderful picture of salvation contained in this little unit here, this little story. A picture of salvation for us. The fact that he says the command is simply rise, right? It's it's a word for resurrection. It's a picture of moving from death to, to life, forgiveness and salvation as resurrection from the dead. And again, if Jesus can raise from the dead, can we not? Should we not expect great things of Him? And what a question to be asking them. Which is easier to say? I mean, how would you answer that? Well, one side says, uh, forgiven sin, that's easy, right? Other says, oh, to heal him, certainly that's easy, but nobody takes the bait here. Jesus maybe doesn't even allow time. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take your bed up, rise and walk, God alone heals, God alone forgives, which is easier? Jesus comes with authority that they've never seen nor heard. And He comes as a new Adam as well. Look at what He calls Himself in verses 10 and 11. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Mark is identifying Jesus, because Jesus identifies himself, as the Son of Man, or a new Adam, who is reversing the curse. He says, so that you might know, these miracles are to teach these people who Jesus is. So that you might know, Jesus reveals who he is by what he does. And what he says. See, others note the authority by which he's been teaching. And there's power in this authority. And here they witness power over not just words, but over the created order. Jesus identifies himself as the son of man. We're used to hearing that, the son of man. Or another way to say that, more Old Testament maybe, is the son of Adam. It's the title that God gave to Ezekiel over 50 times. It's the title given to a a savior envisioned in Daniel 7. It's a title given to Israel as well as God's own son. And Jesus takes this title upon himself, son of Adam, son of man. He comes as the second Adam. And he has come to restore all that the first Adam had destroyed in the fall. This son of Adam has come to restore all the, from the fall all, and all subsequent generations after the first Adam. See, the son of man here, the son of Adam has authority like no other son of man has had before him. He says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. It's a cry of restoration. It's a cry calling us to service into this king into this kingdom. There's evidence here in this story that Jesus has authority to cleanse both conscience and... And soul, to heal both mind and body. The crowded house here in Mark chapter 2 becomes a, a type of a kind of microcosm of Jesus' life and ministry, not only for his people, but for the whole of creation. Jesus has come to save, he has come to restore creation to its wholeness once again. He's come to free those who are in bondage to sin. He will be rejected by those he's come to save. He will humble those who exalt themselves, and He will exalt those who are humble. Whatever He comes to say and do calls for a response. And verse 12 shows a very response. He, the paralytic, and He rose immediately, picked up His bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, we've read this story, we've heard this, we've seen Jesus' miracles time and again, and so we tend to lose awe at what Jesus is doing here. And so I just invite you to come with fresh eyes and see who Jesus is and what he's doing. He's healing a guy who can't move. And he's saying to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, many will see Jesus, will hear him, they will fear him. And many will rebel against Him. Many will trust Him. Many will obey, remain in awe of Him. Many will depart, unmoved, perhaps cynical. And some will follow simply. It's all the same for us today. And how do we respond to Him today in awe and in glory? It's a chance to examine why is it that we no longer see God or see Christ with awe, eyes amazed at who He is. The grace that he pours out, the work that he continues today. I invite you to come with fresh eyes to see Jesus in this text. To give glory to God. Well, what does that look like? But to give thanks, glorifying him through gratitude. And to respond simply. There's this immediacy in the way that Mark is telling the gospel story. And we see it here. Rise, take your bed and go home. And the guy does what? Immediately, he rises and he obeys. I love the simplicity of that statement. He rose immediately. There's something in this for us. It's a simple faithfulness, a long obedience in the same direction, the small things. This story captures the tapestry of God's grace. It's a symphony of helpless creatures paralyzed by sin and the effects of the fall, in desperate need of deliverance, of healing. It's it's, it's an echo of creation's own groaning in hopes of restoration. And what can we do to deliver, to heal, to restore, except to come to Christ ourselves and to lead others into His glorious presence? For that is He, then, is the source of healing and restoration. And in light of His grace poured out upon us, what are we called to do but to rise and to walk on in that same grace? And yet, I mean, there's going to be times where we're going to be skeptical of His grace, where we fear His presence is is feigned once again. This this passage invites us to expect a lot of God through Jesus Christ, but what then when our expectations are not met? It seems to me that the religious leaders would have expected a lot from the Messiah, and they wouldn't see a lot of that expectation fulfilled. They were angry in large part, I think, Because their their expectations were unmet. Where is the freedom that was promised when the Messiah would come? If you are the Messiah, we sure don't see the freedom. Or for the ones who remain suffering in sickness perhaps, even as this paralytic was healed. Not all around him were healed. What of those that didn't share in that same glory and restoration? Jesus' touch was painfully missing for them. The night indeed had to come to an end. It's the cry of both Mary and Martha at the tomb. Lord, if you had if you'd been here. So in this, the passage exhorts us, encourages us. Look to him still in wonder and in awe. Hope still, expect still, continue to trust, to love, and above that, to serve. For faith is called into action Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. We hope for what we do not have, and the scriptures say if we hope for what we do not have, we do what? We wait for it patiently. In many ways, we are like this small group of friends, the four carrying the one in pursuit of Jesus' grace. So the exhortation here is to press on, spur one another on, Despite the obstacles, pursue Christ together. For Jesus is the living temple, and he invites us to come. He is the healer of the nations. He is the restorer of all creation. He has authority to heal and authority to forgive, because he has the authority to lay his life down and to take his life back up again. And he who has done that calls us now to rise and to walk with him faithfully in service to him all of our days will you join me in prayer heavenly father we are grateful for your word and as we have heard it now would you help us to put things into action we pray for hearts that are eager and expecting things from you hearts that are humble and coming to you in such a way that, that we would receive gratefully So, Lord, leave us not to our own devices. Would the obstacles that come between us and you not hinder us, but would we wait patiently for your grace, your mercy, and your love? Draw near to us now that we might draw near unto you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.